Katie Wells, AKA Wellness Mama, is an absolute rock star in this whole health and nutrition industry. She's a mom of six kids, so she's going right for sainthood with a background in journalism. So she went through her own struggles, which you will hear about today, and took her health into her own hands, just like many of you do. She started researching, she wrote a blog, she's written over 1,500 blog posts, three books, and she was named one of the 100 most influential people in health and wellness. That is just crazy. She has often been called a thought leader for the current generations of moms. She is passionate about all things family, all things kiddos, all things health. She has an amazing store that we will link to in the show notes. But this conversation is one that you are going to thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. And it's going to be applicable to your health, to your family's health, and to your family's lifestyle. Are you finally at your wit's end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound... Like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. Miss Katie Wells, I have just been hearing about you from so many of our mutual friends and they wanted us to get together and do a podcast. We finally did it. And I'm just super happy because like I was telling you off air, your information is something that I really believe my listeners need. A lot of my listeners are mamas and they're in overwhelm and they're trying to take care of their own health and they're trying to go through this thyroid Hashimoto's journey while figuring out the family life and how to you know, give time and attention to themselves and to the family. So welcome to the show, first of all. And second of all, I can't wait to hear your own health journey story. So thank you for jumping on. Thank you so much for having me. We got to chat recently on my podcast and I'm excited to now switch gears and get to chat with you on yours. Definitely. This is going to be a fan favorite. So yeah, Katie, I know you have Hashimoto's as well. So let's let's rewind, start at the beginning of all the things that kind of happened to you to bring this up, what your symptoms were and how you were finally diagnosed. Yeah, absolutely. And I like to say now I had Hashimoto's. I try to, um, because I don't have currently any symptoms or anything lingering from it, but it was a long journey to get to that point. And I would say it actually started probably far in advance of this, but I started noticing symptoms right after I had my first baby. And when I asked my doctor about it, I got an answer that many people might very well understand and have gotten similarly, which is that no, everything is normal. Those are all just normal symptoms that comes with being a mom. It's all in your head, you know, just like get some sleep, which is hilarious to say to a new mom to begin with. And 
I also, at around the same time, read at my six-week follow-up appointment with my doctor, actually, that for the first time in two centuries, the current generation of American children would have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And that really opened my eyes just to the crazy statistics around the rise in chronic disease and heart disease and cancer and diabetes, which we now probably all know too well because we're still seeing those things rise quite a bit. Um But in that moment, looking at my tiny baby, I just resolved I didn't want that to be his future. And I didn't want that to be any child's future. And my background up to that point was in journalism. I had really never thought to delve into the world of health and wellness or nutrition or anything beyond just calories and weight when it came to nutrition. And so it started a research pathway for me kind of side by side with my own health journey. And I had to learn very much the hard way over the course of many years and many doctors to advocate for myself. And to finally like actually push to get the test that I thought would actually give more insight into what was going on with me rather than just the test that they give as a baseline when you think you have something going on. And that was a long and frustrating process. But then through that, I found some incredible doctors that are now also friends of mine that I've had on the podcast who are very much aligned with what I say so often now, which is at the end of the day, we are each our own primary healthcare provider. And while we can work with amazing practitioners and hopefully we get that chance, The responsibility lies entirely with us because we're the ones deciding our daily inputs. We're the ones putting things in our body or avoiding things that shouldn't be in our body. We're the ones who choose how we sleep or how much we sleep or all the things that actually make the big long-term difference. And so in hindsight, I'm really, really grateful for all of the symptoms for the diagnosis and now for the recovery, because I learned so much through that process. And I think often the things that seem the hardest in life in the future end up becoming our biggest blessings and the things we're most grateful for. So while I wouldn't have chosen them, I would also not trade them for anything because I learned so much through that process that hopefully is now benefiting my kids and through the amazing community of of moms on the internet, hopefully benefiting many more families also. Well, you've touched so many families and, you know, I really do believe that all of us in this space We've, most of us have gone through something just like you have, just like I have. We have our own pain to purpose story. And that really, I say it all the time as well. It's a blessing. It's a gift because that brought us into this world where we can help others and touch the lives of so many other people. So a hundred percent, would you say that that was the catalyst to literally shift your career? Absolutely. I think up into that point, I always had a vision of wanting to help improve the world. And up until that point, I thought maybe that would happen through some kind of work in politics or through becoming a lawyer. I had all these ideas. I'm so grateful that that shifted. I think the work I'm doing now is so fulfilling and I'm so grateful that shifted, but it had never occurred to me until that time. So very much it was the catalyst. But now every day I'm grateful I get to do the work I do. Well, yeah, talk about stress if you went into politics, my God. So yeah, we're glad you're here too. We're glad you're in this (laughs) space too. So it was interesting that you said after your first child, and we talked about this on your podcast a little bit too, because I hear this so often and my listeners are definitely listening to everything that you just said, nodding from what you were told by your doctors to that light switch turning on after a pregnancy. And like we talked about pregnancy is beautiful. It's natural, but it's a stressor on the body and huge hormonal changes happening during pregnancy. So would you say that it was more so the stress of pregnancy or was it the stress of life or kind of a combination that, that kind of triggered your Hashimoto's switch to turn on? 
I think it was probably both and. And in hindsight, I think the seeds of that started well, well, well in advance of getting pregnant. In fact, I say in hindsight, if you want to create autoimmune disease, do what I did and don't get enough sleep, eat really inflammatory food and be stressed all the time. And I was at the time triple majoring before I got pregnant, 28 hours a semester, up super late, eating just cafeteria food if I ate at all, which are all not great things for your hormones or for your immune system. So I think that the seeds of that started far, far in advance, but that with all the theories you hear them from lots of different people, whether it's the bucket theory, the bathtub theory, whatever it is, our bodies are meant to be healthy. They always are working toward being healthy, but they also have a threshold. And once, whether you put whatever inputs you put in, once you reach that threshold, it's going to overflow and something's going to happen or you're going to see some result of that in the body. And again, I think symptoms are awesome because that's our body talking to us and it's great insight. So I'm grateful that happened. But for me, it exhibited in Hashimoto's. And then that started the journey of trying to figure out how to undo that bathtub scenario where I had filled it with all of these negative inputs. Right. Absolutely. So kind of springboarding off of that, you do mention sleep and food. So let's start there. And then I want to move into just even all of the the toxin exposure that we are exposed to on a daily basis from our toothpaste and our body wash and things that we put on ourselves and on our kiddos. So Let's start with sleep and food. So you had to obviously shift a little bit and prioritize sleep and then really shift in the in the food department and shift far away from cafeteria processed food into really good, nutritious, healthy food. So talk to us about how hard was that to make that shift, especially when starting a family? It was definitely a learning curve in the beginning. And I know for any new moms, it sounds callous to just say we have to get more sleep. My heart totally empathizes with other moms who are in that state. And in the newborn phase, sleep is just always going to be a little bit of a struggle. I think the beauty there is that our hormones know that. So our body's actually designed to be very resilient in that phase, even if we aren't getting eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. So the good news is the body has like sort of built-in fail-safes for that if we get some of those other factors in line until we're able to optimize sleep again. Sleep was probably the toughest to really get dialed in, especially when I had a lot of babies and toddlers at once. So I have six kids and there was a point where they were all nine and under and sleep just was not easy at that phase. And I was also like sort of learning from the ground up because even though my parents had been somewhat interested in health, it came from a place of my mom had a dairy allergy and different things like that, not from a complete understanding of nutrition. So I was learning that as I went, I went back actually to school to study that and then did a lot of research on my own and started implementing things, which for a long time, I was on a much more restrictive AIP type protocol, just realizing inflammation was at that point, a big issue for me. And I was trying to do anything I could to reduce inflammation. So I was very careful about what I ate, what I came in contact with, and to as much degree as I could as a new mom to how my sleep quality was, which often meant more things like I got morning sunlight. I tried to spend time outside during the day and I tried to at least create a good sleep environment so that when I could sleep, I was sleeping well. And then I realized over time in the evolution of that too, while I think those nutrition protocols are super valuable, especially if you're in an acute phase, there came a point where I realized, okay, my body is healing. And my goal for the long term is not to be healthy and thriving when I only have this very narrow, extremely optimized set of inputs where everything is perfect because that's not sustainable. That's not how life works. So I wanted over time to become as adaptable as possible and as resilient as possible and still choose the good inputs whenever I could, but also know that my body would be fine and adapt if I didn't have 
amazing nutrition one day, or I couldn't get a perfect night of sleep one night, or I was traveling and was going to be exposed to Wi-Fi or whatever in the environment. And so that became my focus for the next few years. And now I feel like I'm much more in a place where I still want to eat and choose the healthiest inputs whenever I can, but I'm also not going to stress at all if there are times when that's not going to happen or we're traveling and you're just going to eat what's there because it's there or whatever. So that's been kind of the evolution of the mindset since then. That's awesome. Yeah. And when, when you're talking about traveling too, I think instant overwhelm occurs when we say, you know, food and traveling and what do I do? Do I pack? Cause I get this question all the time, especially with a family. So I'm glad you touched on that. And I, I want to go deeper on that. And I also want to go deeper on the affordability piece. So you have six kids now. I realized maybe it was different in the beginning when you were first diagnosed, you know, you only had one, that's not too bad. But as more kiddos start to come, how do you, and I'm, I'm kind of setting you up, I know your answer to this, but how do you guys manage the budget and affordability of good nutritious food? Because you know, and I know, because you hear it from your community, I hear it from mine. It's too expensive to eat healthy. And we go, oh, is it? So I'm just going to hand this over to you, handing the baton, take it over, Katie. Yeah, no, I think this is such a good question. And it's one I also learned very much by trial and error. But to your point, I think it's realizing it's a mindset shift first. I think what we prioritize, we focus on, and we integrate much more. I also think for moms, especially, or parents in general, the mindset planning side of this is a really big puzzle piece that fits together with the actual nutrition side. Because moms, statistically, as a population, we are typically very overwhelmed. We're very busy. We manage so much for so many people. At my point of almost extreme burnout, I came to a point where I almost had a nervous breakdown years ago from the mental managing of everything to do with my family, with work, with nutrition, with all of it. And what I realized was it wasn't actually the getting things done that was my source of stress. It was the open mental loops of knowing all the stuff I had to manage. And so I started looking at where can I put in structure that will take the mental load off? Like what variables can I solve for that take the mental load off while still getting these things done? Because as moms, we can't just choose not to do the things that involve, you know, taking care of our children or feeding our family. So the mindset side and getting the structure in place was huge for me. But I also learned, and I had been on a very tight budget for a lot of my motherhood journey. So I very much understand people who have the budgetary concerns. And I realized from making those switches over time, that not only can it be done in a budget-friendly way, in some ways it can be less expensive once you get those systems in place, because a lot of people are willing to spend five or $6 on a latte when you could buy, you know, organic eggs for that and have a ton of protein and get choline and feel fueled for the day. So I think it's about partially where our priorities are. But I also learned tricks like bulk cooking proteins and having, because that's the part of a meal that takes the longest to cook typically. So if I bulk cooked a bunch of protein sources at the beginning of the week, I could very easily pivot those into like homemade curries or chicken tikka masala or soups or whatever, stir fries, and they would be very quick to prepare because time is the other huge limiting factor for moms. And you compare those with things just like organic frozen veggies, which are not expensive. They're certainly cheaper than eating out, but they're also cheaper than processed food. And I think if you just build that into your family culture and plan ahead a little bit, that one hour of time of bulk cooking on a Sunday can save you hours and hours throughout the week which then also frees up some bandwidth, hopefully, for other things that are going to be helpful, whether it be breath work, whether it be time outside, whatever it is that fills you back up. I love that. You know, I'm so happy you mentioned that because 
I came from the world of bodybuilding where we made our food and packaged it and you had all these pre-made meals and that just gets tiring, right? To sit there on a Sunday and mass cook. But if you just think of it from what you just said, bulk cooking the protein, just do that. And then you can throw it into any recipe through the week and you're saving tons of time. So I absolutely, absolutely love that. And I love the fact that you broke down the, the budget because it is true when you really start looking at things and especially these days, I mean, my goodness, two people can't go out to dinner and, and have wings for under $50. So when you look at what it's like to cook for a family, it's so much cheaper. It's so much less expensive to buy even the organic and even the grass fed than to go out to eat. And I mean, listen, buy a freezer, buy half of a cow. I mean, I know that's not possible in maybe big metro areas, but in most of the country, you can find a farmer, you can even order nowadays half of a cow and throw it in the freezer so that you have grass-fed, non-hormoned up meat ready to go. Just grab and go. Exactly. And I think also the beauty of just pre-cooking the protein is you have more versatility throughout the week. So instead of like on Monday, we're eating this on Tuesday, we're eating this, I would have a running list of these are possible meals that can be made with this protein. And whatever we felt like that night was very quick and easy to prepare. And as the kids get older, the beauty of that is if food is available, kids are likely to eat it. And so whatever you keep available in the house is what they will eat. And as they get older, they can now make their own meals that are centered on protein and healthy sources of carbs and vegetables, and they can take it in whatever direction they want, but they're just so much more likely to, because they're not likely to cook a whole chicken when they're hungry, but they're very likely to throw some pre-cooked chicken into something when they're hungry. So I felt like for the kids, that also made it much easier for them to make healthy choices. Oh, 100%. And I'm very passionate. I don't speak a lot about about pediatrics and, and pediatric conditions on this show, but I am very passionate about moms taking care of themselves during pregnancy and getting their thyroid optimized because we are seeing higher rates of autism and learning disabilities. And I have in my life an autistic child that doesn't speak. And the importance of food for learning, for memory, for cognition, for growth, for proper development is huge. So it's just as important when mom is pregnant to have an optimized thyroid and to eat these natural, real foods that are not chemically processed and laden with hormones and antibiotics, but it's just as important after when the child is born. And even if your child is not diagnosed with anything, just basic growth and basic progression of, of learning is reliant upon good, healthy nutrition. So I'll let you expand on that as well. But what about the importance for the kids even growing up and all these kids that are given kid food, you know, from the kids menu. What about that? What are, what's your take on that? I think in general, we vastly underestimate kids and how capable they are, how much they can understand, especially when we just build these things into a family culture from day one. They actually are so capable of understanding from a very young age how food affects their body. And I think this is a much more long-term, long-game approach than just mandating what they eat. Actually, it surprises people, but I'm very against militantly just controlling what kids eat. I think 
long-term, it's much more effective to give them a solid foundation of understanding how food affects their bodies. Let them make choices. Let them fail at making choices sometimes. Let them eat the junk food when they're not in your house so they see how they feel when they eat it. And so it doesn't become a forbidden, enticing thing because they never got to experience it. They get to experience it and realize, oh, that's actually not very good. And when you're used to eating really nutritious food, the processed stuff just doesn't taste as good. So I think if we can make those early priority to really give them nutrient dense foods from the beginning, especially in those early eating windows, when it's really pivotal for their brain development, for their body development, it's also going to habituate their preferences to prefer those things as they get older. And now, especially with my older ones, they make really great food choices 95 plus percent of the time because they understand it and because they know how they feel and it's not me controlling their food. I also think the modeling aspect can't be overstated. And I've seen this play out with my kids. We know the data even in related areas. Like for instance, it's not having books in your house that makes kids likely to read. It's certainly not forcing kids to read that makes kids likely to read. It's a parent actually reading in the house, not telling the kid to read at all. And I think the same applies with nutrition, with health, with wellness, with anything we want to impart to our kids. It's what we model. And if we show them that it's a priority, even without mandating that it become their priority, they're so much more likely to integrate that and make it their own and take ownership of it. And I think long-term, that's what really affects how likely they are to actually stick with these things. Definitely. Yeah. And and I like what you say about letting them fail too. My, my best friend's kid, he ate something. I want to say it was carb-laden, gluten-laden pizza, heavy sugar. And he said, mom, it feels like my brain is like vibrating and shaking. So it was definitely a lesson coming from a, a pretty clean eating household to eating with friends when he's out and experiencing that, that symptom we'll say from poor eating. I mean, we experience it as adults too, when we clean up our diet and then we eat something bad. It's like, Ooh, yeah. Lesson learned, but it's really cool to see in kids when they're in tune with their bodies and they can actually feel and verbalize that shift that occurred and, and pair it up with, okay, this food caused it. Absolutely. And yeah, and I'm not exempted as an adult either. Like I certainly will eat some things I would never cook at home necessarily if I'm at a nice dinner with friends and it's like a community social aspect. And I can still realize like I may not feel the best after that. But it's also like we talked about earlier, that lesson of understanding, like choose the good stuff most of the time, like make good choices most of the time, certainly at home, that's what we have in the house. So we're not making poor choices at home, but also realize that like long-term stress and fear are equally bad for us as any horrible food we can eat. And community is one of the best things we can have in our lives. And so if you're going to sometimes eat a food you wouldn't eat at home in community for a social purpose, like that's okay too. Don't have stress and guilt and fear and shame about that. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because that's a, that's another health pillar that tends to go overlooked. And and I love these types of conversations that bring us back to, I wanna say the basics, but that's not even the right word, back to the, the lifestyle and choices that we can all make for ourselves and our family. Because on this podcast, obviously I talk a lot about thyroid and hormones and treatment, and but we all have to come back to the core. We all have to come back to the sleep and the food and what we're moving into next, the toxin exposure, because if we don't have that foundation, it doesn't matter how many supplements, how many hormones, how much thyroid medication we throw at the body, the body's not going to respond without that core foundation. So I'm really happy that we're talking about this today and that you're mentioning all the different things that you are. So let's move into the toxin talk of what we are exposed to 
on a daily basis. Now, you know, a big one is fluoride. We can start there as it relates to the thyroid because fluoride absolutely kills the thyroid. And then let's just move on to everything else that you see and that you have dove into and studied and and actually created full lines of products for people that are toxin-free. So yeah, let's start there and how all this toxin exposure is affecting our health and our family's health. Yes. And I think this is such an important conversation. And I like to always preface by hopefully helping people avoid the pitfall I fell into in the beginning of learning about all this, which was that I became sort of fearful of everything out there. Because when you start learning about what's in everything, it can almost seem like everything is going to negatively affect you. And while that can be the case. And while the good news is there's now alternatives that make it very easy to avoid the really bad stuff. I just like to preface that because I did get stuck in that kind of fear cycle and was afraid of everything for a while. But like I said, the good news is that now, especially there are such great alternatives to literally everything. This These didn't exist 16 years ago when I first got started. But I feel like this is now entering the mainstream conversation more, but I feel like we do need more conversation around it because every day we're interacting with so many chemicals and compounds that did not exist a hundred years ago that our body doesn't really have much context for dealing with yet, whether it be plastics that are in almost everything we interact with to, you mentioned fluoride, which is huge for the thyroid. And when I started researching this one, it almost was laughable when I realized there is limited data on fluoride helping make teeth more hard, which is a distinction from stronger, but they they get more hard when it's used topically. However, none of that research extends to when we ingest fluoride. So to me, putting it in the water supply is ridiculous because that would be akin to eating band-aids when you have a paper cut. It's not addressing the actual problem. Not to mention, we now know from studies, there are things like hydroxyapatite, which is naturally occurring and what's actually in our tooth enamel that can outperform fluoride in a lot of this testing that they're doing. So That would be an example. And there's easy switches that can still accomplish the things you want. Like you want your teeth to be white. You want your teeth to be strong. You want to avoid getting cavities can still help do all those things without the potential downsides, especially for someone who is dealing with any kind of thyroid issue, because I'm sure you've talked about, but fluoride can bind in a similar way to the receptors on our thyroid and make it hard to uptake the things we actually need to have a healthy, thriving thyroid. So that's a big one and an easy one, thankfully, like you said, to avoid these days. But this also extends to people don't think as much about the things that are in our laundry products, in our personal care products, because our skin is arguably, it's at least one of our top two biggest organs. Some people say it's our biggest organ. Others would argue muscle is our biggest organ. I would say they're both really important, but our skin is a large organ and much of what goes on our skin enters our body, which is actually a good thing. This is the same process by which vitamin D can be integrated in our body from sun exposure. This is important. However, when we're putting less than helpful things on our skin, a lot of that can enter our bloodstream. And this can be through the personal care products, which is a really big one for women, especially. We use on average four to five times as many products as men. So we have a lot more exposure there. And babies are now born with hundreds of chemicals in their cord blood from the products their moms are using, but also things like laundry products. Because if your laundry smells fresh and fragrant and like flowers or some other chemically created thing, you're getting actually a double exposure. So you're getting a skin exposure from having your clothes on your body every day, but you're also getting low level inhalation exposure because you're breathing those chemicals all day. And so this is like a low level chronic exposure that's actually harder for your body to deal with potentially than like a short-term exposure to something that your body knows how to process and get rid of. So I feel like 
for moms, especially some of those easy swaps are just switching to non-toxic laundry products, of which there are amazing ones like Branch Basics is a great brand. They make a concentrate that's eco-friendly and that you can use for laundry, cleaning, pretty much everything in your house. And then with the personal care side, that was actually my driving force in creating products myself was realizing I often think of the 80-20 principle, which is that 80% of results often come from 20% of inputs. And this is actually true of our toxin exposure as well. So most of us are getting the exposure to the most harmful stuff from 20% of the products that we use. And it's the ones we use every day, like oral care products and hair products, especially. And so I realized even people who were choosing fully organic diets and really trying to optimize were still leaning on the conventional products in those areas because they worked better. And as women, I like, I get it. We're not willing to sacrifice how our hair looks or feels or how our teeth look or feel just to go natural sometimes. And so I realized we need people to innovate and create products that don't just aren't just natural. That should be the baseline in my opinion. Like that should be the bare minimum, but that perform as well as the conventional alternative so that we can make the switch without having this huge hassle or having our products not perform the way we want. So that was why I first delved into the personal care world at all. And like I said, I think there's amazing, easy switches in the food world now, in the cleaning products that we have, in the personal care products. And whether it's the ones I created or other products, just find the natural ones and just make those swaps as you run out of whatever product you have, swap it out for a more natural alternative and you can decrease your chemical load drastically just by doing those small swaps. That's amazing. And yeah, that's why you created wellness. And did it start with the the personal care products and what all do you carry? I mean, you don't have to list everything, but give us a kind of a brief overview of what you carry in your store and what are your favorite products to, to recommend to people? Yeah, it started in my kitchen years ago because like I said, when I first got into this world and was researching it, there weren't really alternatives for a lot of these things. So I started DIYing everything. But back to the idea that moms are so busy, I also realized most people are not going to take the time to order all these obscure ingredients and start making things from scratch all the time. We just don't have the time. But it was actually the oral care side that was my first foray into that because at the time I could not find a natural toothpaste that didn't have fluoride or glycerin because glycerin can also cause yellowing of the teeth over time. And with so many pregnancies back to back, I had developed a few small cavities and they didn't want to fill them while I was pregnant, which I'm really grateful that we did not do that because what happened in that time period was I started researching the oral health and nutrition connection And I read books like Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Dr. Weston A. Price and realized that while we often think of the mouth in isolation as its own system, it's so intricately connected to the body and it's dependent on things like our mineral consumption and our fat-soluble vitamin consumption. And so I started optimizing those factors. And in that time period, we moved. And so I went to a new dentist who told me, oh yeah, your teeth look great, no cavities. And I was, it blew me away because I was always told cavities can't heal. If you have cavities, you need to get them filled. And it turns out that through the work of Dr. Weston A. Price and others, if there are small cavities and they're not through to the dentin of your teeth, your body has built-in processes of remineralization to repair your enamel if you give it the right inputs. And so I started making my own toothpaste and for the kids so that we would have not only a non-toxic one, but one that supported the oral microbiome and that supported the remineralization process. And that was what led to the initial, the toothpaste. And then I started iterating in other areas as well. So we now have a full range of oral care products and also hair care products. And now things like deodorant and soap. Um, Deodorant would also be in that 80-20 category because we put it very close to our lymph glands and our armpits. A lot of deodorants contain things that are similar to that low level chronic exposure 
that over time really builds up and is hard for the body to deal with, especially when we're talking about things like aluminum that can build up in the body. So I wanted to really tackle the biggest offenders that would make the biggest difference for families and that were products that families would use the most. Oh my gosh, I love it. And you know what? Guilty as charged, I also don't focus enough on the mouth health connection. You know, you always hear about the mouth and dental work being tied to, you know, heart disease. And wait a minute, how does that happen? But I love that you went deep into that. And I didn't even know the the strong connection between dental health, mouth health, and our full body health. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't, and I didn't for a lot of years, understand that connection, but it's so fascinating. Like we talk a lot now about gut health, especially in the health world. And we understand that gut health impacts our whole body. It impacts our brain. There's the gut brain connection. That's how we absorb our food. Everything goes back to the gut, but people don't realize that that actually starts in the mouth. And we have an oral microbiome that initiates the digestive process, but also that keeps our mouth healthy and in check if it's if it's supported. And it was fascinated when I learned that, that an imbalance of oral microbiome can cause one of two problems and they typically don't exist at the same time because they're both based in kind of competing oral health imbalances, which are in one category, you have strep mutants, which leads to cavities. And in the other category, you have the bacteria that lead to things like gingivitis. And those are both opportunistic bacteria that can get our oral microbiome out of balance. So if we understand that, we can then try to focus on supporting our oral microbiome, just like we would our gut microbiome, which makes our mouth more resilient. It increases that process of remineralization. It can also address things like bad breath or teeth that are yellowing. So it's very positive. It's a positive feedback loop when we understand it and can support it. And that's where digestion begins. So it just makes sense. Like if, even if you are having gut issues, which we know, you know, gut issues, the, the health of the GI tract isn't just relying upon, oh, I have, you know, constipation or diarrhea or gas. No, I mean, it can, if the gut is off, it can affect all other systems. And you might not even have GI issues or symptoms. But if we look at, just like you said, the entire GI tract and how it impacts our health, if we start at the mouth, which I just, I love your toothpaste. So I'm just saying this like, hey, I didn't even know it had this kind of benefit, right? I was just using it because I like the taste and it's fluoride free and it's awesome. So if we start with the mouth and we're using the correct toothpaste, then it could even be said that since digestion starts there, you are impacting your gut and thus impacting all other systems that the gut is tied to. So yeah. Absolutely. And I think that understanding the oral microbiome, it warrants extra attention to our oral health that way, because as an example, I use, you know, there are medications you can put under your tongue that get to your body more efficiently than an oral medication you would swallow because the mouth is so connected to the whole body. Mm -hmm. And people who have chronic heart conditions will often be given antibiotics when they have any kind of dental work because the mouth is so connected to the whole body. And so if we understand that, of course, in those cases, people want to be really careful and use that knowledge to their advantage to stay safe in those instances. But it also means we can use our oral health to positively affect the health of our whole body when we are supporting it. Absolutely. And all of these toxins that we are exposed Two, through, like you said, laundry soap, the the lotion that we're putting on our bodies, and especially as women, how are you seeing that? Or have you done any research on the effect on kids? Like, what will we start to see when kids or even, you know, infants or adolescents are exposed to the barrage of toxins in everything? 
Yeah. So similarly to how it impacts adults, but I would say even more so because kids, while they're more resilient, they're also more like sponges, both mentally and how they learn. And also their body is just rapidly uptaking everything because they're growing so fast. And so kids often will be kind of almost like canaries in the coal mine where they can start seeing symptoms first, but they also, the good news is they can resolve sometimes faster than adults, but kids will often exhibit with things like skin symptoms. Eczema is very common in children now. Oral health issues are very much on the rise in kids right now, but they'll also see the brain effects very quickly because their blood brain barrier is less well-formed in those rapid growth phases. And so a lot of the chemicals that wouldn't impact adults as much are going to be able to get into the brain of children more. But like I said, the good news is the body is incredibly resilient and it has built-in redundancies to protect us. And so when we just get those things out, the body naturally wants to move toward health. It naturally wants to thrive and especially in kids. And so simply just giving them better inputs and removing the negative ones is often enough to help kids like really move in a positive direction quickly. I love that. I love that. And, And obesity. I mean, we're seeing more and more obese children. I mean, starting early, kids five, six, seven are being diagnosed with type two diabetes. And I'm even hearing Hashimoto's showing itself early, early on when really we wouldn't see that until the later years. So autoimmune conditions on the rise and definitely obesity on the rise. Now, would you say that that's more tied to the food quality that we may or may not be feeding our kids? Or is it more tied to this toxin exposure? I think it's very much a both and. And I think, like you said, we're seeing insulin resistance in kids. We're seeing chronic diseases that used to only exist in adults in alarming rates in kids now. I think kids especially are the highest risk group for what we hear a lot about in the media with being overfed but undernourished. Because if you look at the average diet of a lot of kids, they're consuming plenty of calories, but they're not actually getting very many nutrients at all. And so this starts that inflammation pathway, which can then exhibit an autoimmune disease. It can start that insulin resistance pathway that can go into obesity or prediabetes or even full-fledged diabetes. Um, The good news is, like I said, kids are designed to rapidly uptake. So if we make small changes with them over time, they often can get back to a healthier place so much more quickly. And I think for parents, I often just encourage make the focus in your house about nutrient density for volume of food, not about even the food itself. Don't demonize foods. It doesn't need to be a foods are evil, foods are good. Focus on like, what are the positives? What is, how do we get more protein? How do we get more macronutrients and micronutrients? And how do we optimize the food that we're eating to nourish our brains and our bodies the most? And the good thing is because kids are, rapidly absorbing everything, they often notice the difference before we do even. And so once they start to feel that difference, often it's much easier to sustain it with kids because they can feel so quickly the difference from whatever inputs they're putting in. But also we do know that a lot of these toxins do create that initial inflammatory pathway, which makes it much more difficult for them to absorb the nutrients from their food, to create their proper hormones. We're seeing precocious puberty happening so young in kids now. Young teenage boys are having very low testosterone levels compared to other generations. So I think it is a massive problem, but thankfully one that can be pretty easily addressed if we just kind of go for these root cause factors. Definitely. I'm seeing that as well. And I get so many questions from moms regarding their kids and what they're seeing at a very early age. And even, you know, one question that I get often is how do we prevent this, meaning Hashimoto's or a thyroid problem in our kids? And we know it's hereditary. We know all all autoimmune conditions have that genetic component to it. But what's going to be interesting to see, especially in your family, because we know you have Hashimoto's, is if that lifestyle that you implemented from day one for your kids, if that 
will literally protect them. And now, you know, listen, they're going to grow up. They're going to, your girls are going to have babies too. They're going to go through stress. There's going to be all these external things that will come in that could flip that Hashimoto switch. But it's going to be really interesting to see if that happens or how old they are when it happens, if they go past the age that you were at when it happens, because you've built such a fantastic foundation in their bodies where you and I grew up with, you know, Schwabel's bread and cereal and ho-hos, you know, they're growing up totally different. And like you said, yeah, sure, they'll enjoy a treat here and there, but their foundation, once again, is built around that healthy eating, non-processed food. So that's going to be kind of fun to see. It will be. And I think it'll be interesting. I think of that quote that, what is it? That genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. And it, the statistics on this are actually really fascinating. Like we we can't change our genes, but I've seen now recent research saying genes might only contribute like 5% of actual what happens with our health outcomes, which is great news because it means we have within our ability to affect change, most of the factors that relate to how we're going, like what our health status is going to be as we get older. And I hope with my kids that they've also seen, so they've seen me having Hashimoto's. They've seen me being so tired that I would take a nap in front of the door so they couldn't run out in traffic. They've seen me lose a hundred pounds. They've seen all these things happen, but they've also seen me heal. And I've tried to really make part of our conversation, that idea that the body is designed to thrive. It's designed for optimal health. It's designed for healing. And when we have symptoms, those are actually a great thing because that's our body telling us something and the body is capable of healing. So I hope that even if they face health struggles, whatever they may be in their future, they also remember that message that not only can the body heal, the body wants to heal and that they'll partner with their body at an earlier age than I did to create that process more easily than my learning curve. Oh my God, that's a mic drop right there. I mean, I could just (laughs) put a period at the end of that sentence, but that's beautiful, Katie. That's awesome. Uh, But I am going to ask you, if you would give advice to moms and I'm not even going to say new moms. It can be moms. I mean, who knows? They could have 13, 14, 16, 17, 18 year olds at home, still stressful environment. So if you're giving advice to moms out there on taking care of themselves, what would you tell them? I would tell them two things. I would say from the parenting side, remember and try to stay focused on the idea that your children are their own infinitely capable autonomous humans who can understand so much and don't do for them what they're capable of doing themselves. Because often our stress as moms doesn't actually come from what our children need, but what we decide to do for them in the name of being a societal good mom. And that long-term, we actually are setting our kids up for success more and reducing our emotional stress if we let them be independent and autonomous as when they're capable. So for me, one of my non-negotiable parenting rules is that when my kids are capable of doing something, I will not do it for them. And of course, there are situations like my daughters know how to braid their own hair, but sometimes I will braid their hair just because it's a bonding experience. I'm not talking about that. But when my kids are capable of doing their own laundry, I'm not going to do their laundry for them. When they're capable of making their own bed or cleaning their own bathroom, I'm not going to do it for them because I think that's actually a disservice to them. And not only is that helping them learn to become more capable and they feel valued because they actually have ownership for contributing to our house, it also reduces my emotional load because I'm not running around trying to be everything to everybody in my house all the time. And then on the other side, I would say that while our words are important, and of course we want to speak to our kids in a way that helps form them for the long term, 
what we do is so much more important than what we say. And this has been a very hard learned lesson for me that's been through iterations over the years, but what we model is so much more important. And so if you actually want your kids to grow up and live thriving lives and know how to take care of themselves, the only way they learn that is if you do it first. And like I said, it's been a hard learned lesson and I have not done it perfectly. Like I, at my heaviest, actually, one of my big reasons for change was I saw my daughter see myself, see me look at myself in the mirror and I saw her face register the way I was looking at myself with disgust. And I realized she, it had never occurred to her that a person would look at themselves that way because she didn't ever think about herself that way. And I realized if I kept doing that, she might pick up on that and think of all of her flaws or look at herself that similar way. And so I vowed to change. And through a long process of a lot of things and nutrition and therapy and all kinds of things, I was able to address that. And I lost over a hundred pounds. And then I thought I had it all figured out. I noticed she was trying to be tiny and like trying to fit in tiny shoes and tiny clothes. And I was stumped by it for a while thinking like, why is she trying to be so small and take up so little space? And then I was like, oh, the last two years, I've just been focused on being smaller. And so I realized I have to shift my mindset again. And now I focus on not the number on the scale, but the number of pounds I can pick up off the ground. And she's a high school athlete and we get to do these athletic things together. And she views her body as this amazing tool that can accomplish incredible things, not as a thing she's going to try to punish to be a certain size, but a thing she's going to fuel so that it can perform well and so that she can thrive. And so I think it's an iteration and it's a constant learning process. But at the end of the day, they're going to pay so much more attention to what we do than what we say. And even in little ways, like I sit down and do art at the kitchen table, at least a few of my kids are likely to join me and do art. Whereas if I just told them they should do art, they probably wouldn't do it. Same thing with reading, like I mentioned. Same thing with music lessons. I used to try to encourage my kids to do music lessons. And then I realized, oh, I'm doing that because I wish I had taken music lessons at their age. So why don't I just take the music lessons? And then they got interested in music. What we model is so much more important than what we say. And so the only way your kids get to enter adulthood with the understanding and the foundation for how to take care of themselves is if you show them, not tell them. I literally got chills, especially when you were talking about your daughter seeing your face in the mirror, because as women, how often, and we don't even have to be carrying around an extra hundred pounds. We could be carrying around an extra 10 pounds and we look at ourselves with disgust in the mirror or we verbalize it. And we don't know the tiny ears that are listening and picking up on that. So, oh my God, Katie, that was so powerful. So powerful. So thank you for ending on that because that hit home for a lot of women. I got to tell you that. So that amazing, amazing. I'm speechless. So Katie, you have a full store and an amazing website with a ton of information, over 1500 blog posts. My goodness. So can you tell people where they can find you and follow you and check your store out because you have it all laid out right there for them? Absolutely. So everywhere online, I personally am just Wellness Mama. The website's wellnessmama.com and I'm that on social media. And that has all the educational articles and recipes. It actually has DIY recipes for all the products I carry as well. So if you do want to DIY them and not spend the money on buying them, you can do that too. But if you want the pre-made option, Wellness, which is wellness with an E on the end, is all the CPG products, which are like toothpaste, oral care, hair care, deodorant, et cetera. Um, So you can find all of those on those two places. Amazing. Amazing. We'll put all of that in the show notes as well. So thank you, Katie, for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been an incredible, incredible experience talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. You're such a good interviewer. This was a really fun conversation. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have you back, Katie.